0: Why don't we just say a word of prayer after that marvelous story of God's grace? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the story of the woman who's bleeding. You healed through your son, Jesus, to whom he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And we thank you that you're still writing stories like that. Jesus is still healing his daughters and giving them peace and giving them final Perfect healing forever through the blood of the Lamb, as Mary Beth said. Continue your blessings. We pray upon Mary Beth and her family. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, good morning. I'm so privileged, grateful to be here. My name is Tyler Kinney, and as Matt said, I'm a pastor down the road at Emmanuel, and. Um, I uh, just wanted to to thank Tommy publicly for uh, having the confidence to invite me. You know I was gonna say being so desperate to invite me, but um, and it really is, I'm very grateful to be here. It's hard for me to get away on a Sunday morning and worship uh, with uh, God's people in another congregation. And so this is a real privilege, especially given the um, collaboration we've already had as churches and some shared activities, vacation Bible school. I had the privilege of participating in the Student uh, Discipleship Weekend a month ago and was very, very uh, glad to, to be a part of that and to see some, some familiar faces from that. And um, I, uh, I just, and, and, then, and then as Matt said, Tommy and Matt and Darren and I, our friendship, it's just a real privilege and a blessing to be here. So praise God. Amen. Our sermon this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. I'll be referencing uh, some of these verses. But I want to read the passage uh, in full here to start. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18, starting at verse 18 uh, to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant word, which is life to us. We thank you for its truths that transcend thousands of years and to come and even now teach us and uh, transform us. Feed our faith. We pray that you would do that in this time. Bless your people, feed your sheep, we ask in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Naming children is a funny thing. What I mean by that is that the people have some very different ways they go about doing this thing. I have a Bible study with some uh, college guys on Thursday mornings, and I went around this past week and asked them, how they, what their middle names were and how they got their names. One guy got his name. It's an heirloom kind of family name. Uh, so it was just a given from his family. Another just sounded good to his parents. It's got a nice name. It sounded good. And then another, his middle name came from his dad's favorite video game character. Kind of felt bad for him a little bit. And you wonder what Mary might have been thinking when she learned that she was with child. Maybe she started thinking about names. What was she thinking her names would be for her expected son? For his part, as we see in our passage today, far from thinking about names, Joseph had just made up his mind to leave Mary and the baby. Verse 19 said he had resolved to divorce her quietly. Decision made. He's resolved. The fact that she's expecting is a major problem for him because as far as he understands things, it means that there's somebody else who should be tying the knot with Mary. I picture him lying on his bed the night after Mary told him that she was with child, and wrestling with the news, tossing and turning. What am I going to do? And deciding I'm going to divorce her quietly. She's nice. She says it's from the Holy Spirit, I guess, or the angel came and told her. She said she's not been unfaithful to me, but I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to divorce her. Call off the engagement. When I wake up next tomorrow morning. I'll do it first thing. But before he can follow through on that decision, that very night, in the middle of the night, God intervenes by sending an angel in a dream, and that angel commands Joseph to do two things: stay engaged, don't call off the wedding. Marry Mary. That's the first thing. Don't be afraid to marry her, he says. Because the son doesn't belong to any other man. He belongs to God. Stay engaged. Marry Mary. And then secondly, name the baby. God tells Joseph to name the baby. Naming the baby was the special job of the daddy in those days. If you look over in Luke chapter 1 and the birth of John the Baptist. Who names John the Baptist? His dad, Zechariah. The angel told Zechariah to name his son. and Zechariah goes mute because his faith is weak in that moment. And when they go to name the baby, he's still mute. And Elizabeth says, his name is John. His name is John. And they say, what does the daddy say? And he can't talk, so he writes it down. John. And then he's no longer mute. He can speak again because he has faith. He trusts. He believes the angel. But I say all that because it's an example of how daddies named the baby in those days. And as I was studying this passage in Matthew chapter 1, it struck me just how gracious it was for God to give this job to Joseph. For most of my life, I've thought of Joseph as little more than an extra in the Christmas story, a kind of supporting role for Mary. But just as God greatly honored Mary by calling her to serve the critical role of being Jesus' earthly mother, so also he greatly honors Joseph here by giving him the all-important role of being Jesus' earthly father. The father that this boy, like every other human child, desperately needs. And God signifies that high calling for Joseph by telling him to be the one to name the baby. So Joseph gets to name the baby But there are limits. He can't name him after his favorite video game character. Joseph must give the boy the particular name, Jesus. Then the angel explains, after saying his name will be Jesus, you will call him Jesus. The angel explains why that particular name. Verse 21. For, a sign that this is the reason... For he will save his people from their sins. And here the angel prophesies and tells Joseph what this child will do in his life. He tells Joseph something about this child's special identity and special purpose. And these two things, the child's child's identity and purpose, are captured in that particular name, Jesus. As a sign of his special identity, the name Jesus itself isn't actually all that special. It's basically just the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And that name isn't all that special. No offense to any Josh's in the house or online. Jesus is another Josh, among many other Hebrew boys named Josh in that day. But what I mean. About his special identity and that name indicating Jesus' special identity is that, sorry, I got ahead of myself there. Um, by saying that his name not, is not special, it, is, it means it's not new. But it's a name that was used before and most notably with Joshua, the son of Nun, the man who succeeded Moses and led God's people into the promised land many centuries before Jesus. But even though it's not new, the name Joshua is still full of meaning. It's still full of meaning. It's essentially the combination of two Hebrew words, the name Yahweh and the name or the word salvation. And it translates to Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And of course, that expression is full of meaning. It was full of meaning in the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, where through his leadership, Yahweh saved Israel from their homelessness as a people and from their enemies and planted them in the promised land. Yahweh saved in Joshua, the son of Nun's day, through Joshua's leadership. It was full of meaning, that name was back then, and so too it's full of meaning in the case of Jesus, son of Mary. His name also means Yahweh saves. But in this case, Yahweh isn't doing the saving from behind the scenes anymore. In Jesus, Yahweh saves by stepping on stage himself. In Joshua the son of Nun's case, Joshua was one character and Yahweh was another. But in Jesus' case, Yahweh and the child are not two characters, but one. The child is the Son of God. And as Jesus will express it later, I and the Father are one. So one thing the name Jesus communicates to us is the special identity of this child. He is the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and co-equal with the Father. The presence of this meaning in Jesus' name becomes even more evident for us when we consider what Matthew says in verses 22 and 23. There he says that the naming of the child is in fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And that prophecy says that when the virgin gives birth to a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. I like that verse. It's the name of our church. And in this case, if his readers don't know what it means, Matthew is kind to translate it for us at the end of verse 23. "Emmanuel" means God with us. Apparently, it's important for you to know what that means. And the funny thing is that Matthew doesn't even seem to notice that the name Jesus or Joshua is not the same name as Emmanuel. Name the boy Jesus. See, it fulfills. Name him Emmanuel. They're not the same name, they don't have the same spelling, they don't sound the same. Jesus is one name, Emmanuel is another name. They're different names. Or are they? What I believe Matthew's saying here is that even though they are different letters, different sounds, the meaning of both names is the same. The meaning of the name Jesus and the meaning of Emmanuel are the same. The name Jesus means Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And in Jesus, God is with us in a whole new way. In a whole new way than he was with Joshua, the son of Nun. So one of the things Jesus' name reminds us of is his special identity. He is the God who is with us. And the second thing it reminds us of is of his special purpose. The second half of Jesus' name refers to salvation. Yahweh saves, and that is Jesus' purpose. But I say that it is a special purpose because the salvation that he brings is unlike any that has come before. Consider some of the prior salvations God's people have experienced to this point in history. I referenced a moment ago, the salvation of Joshua, which gave Israel victory over the Canaanite enemies and brought them into the promised land. But due to his own and the people's sin, it was flawed from the beginning. And before long, Israel's neighbors began to oppress them again. We find that in the early chapters of the book of Judges. Joshua's victory in leading the people into the promised land Had inherent flaws, and soon things degraded, and God's people began to be oppressed by their enemies from within and without. And so God raises up Judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and others, and each of these worked salvation for God's people in their time and subdued their enemies. But their salvation was always fragile, imperfect, and temporary. As soon as each judge died, the people turned back to their sins, and before long they were under oppression again. So eventually they got tired of this whole cycle, this up and down of having a new judge and then him going away and being oppressed again, and they wanted something more permanent, a more permanent salvation. So they begged Samuel to give them a king, just like the other nations. Kings mean royal lines and dynasties. So Give us a king, they thought, and we'll have a perpetual line of saviors. But if you know the history of Israel, you know that this too didn't endure. The early kings, especially David and his son Solomon, on account of their faith in God, find success in subduing Israel's enemies and bringing peace. But the story goes quickly downhill from there. Solomon's own son, instigates what becomes essentially a civil war the kingdom splits and most of the subsequent subsequent kings in both kingdoms do not have faith in God and so in time one of the kingdoms is conquered by the Assyrians and not too long after that by the Babylonians the southern kingdom and Israel is once again looking for a savior Joshua couldn't bring it judges couldn't bring it kings couldn't bring it And that's where we find ourselves here at the start of Matthew's gospel. Israel is without a king, and they are ruled over by the Romans. And they long for the day when their king once again resumes the throne, drives out the enemy, and brings salvation and peace. They have a promise that this will happen. God had promised years ago to David himself that he would have an everlasting kingdom. His line would never end. And the prophets after him foretold a day when David's son would return and bring salvation and peace to Israel once again. And that is what is fulfilled here in Matthew chapter 1. Did you notice how the angel addressed Joseph in verse 20? Son of David. Joseph, son of David. Joseph is in David's line. And Jesus, as Joseph's legal son, is the rightful heir of David's throne. He is the one who will resume the throne and bring salvation once again by defeating Israel's enemies. And in this regard, defeating Israel's enemies, bringing salvation from their oppressors, in this regard, Jesus' purpose to this point is the same purpose that every other Savior of Israel had. He's going to save them from their enemies. But Jesus' purpose becomes special in the sense that he's going to do it once and for all. He's not going to to win merely a temporary victory spanning only one lifetime or perhaps a few more like all the saviors prior. He's going to end it forever. Across the Bible, God's people have many different enemies. Canaanites, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, etc. And in times past, God raised up various saviors to save his people from these various enemies. But these were all just battles, and the war was never won. Because notice, as you read the Bible and what I've been saying this morning about their history, notice what their real enemy is. Matthew points it out here for us. It's never the particular army or nation who happens to be oppressing them at that time. The common denominator in every case is not an enemy outside of them. There are many different enemies outside of them. The common denominator is rather something inside of them that consistently leads them away from God's protection and into subjection to some lesser power. And this is Israel's perpetual problem. This is our perpetual problem. This is the war that no one in Israel's history has been able to win, and the war is against sin. Our sin. He will save his people from their sins. This is what is special about Jesus' purpose. He will save us from the enemy within us, which oppresses and condemns us, and which none of us can defeat on our own. As God with us, the perfect man and the divine Son of God, He alone has the power to do this. He alone can address our root problem, and He will do it. He will save his people from their sins, though it cost him his own life. And they will be saved forever. Just finish reading the Gospel of Matthew. And now we're getting into my Easter sermon. But actually, let's go there for a minute before we wrap this up. Because it's important for you to know how Jesus wins this war. It's important enough not to keep you waiting until Easter, though I imagine most of you know. We need to hear it again. John the Baptist pictures it for us some years after Jesus' birth by calling Jesus, quoting from John chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You hear him referencing that special purpose. He takes away our sin. He saves us from our sins. And what John adds to that is he indicates how Jesus will do this, the method by which Jesus will take our sins away. And he says he'll do it by becoming a lamb. And the Lamb's job, if you know your Old Testament history, is to serve as a sacrifice. Jesus will become a sacrifice for his people. And by becoming our sacrifice and dying on a cross, he will save us from our sin by taking to himself the fatal blow that we deserve. For our sin, which he does not, and by giving us the life that he himself deserves, and we don't, and the outcome is that his people are saved from that greatest of all their enemies, their sin, and freed to enjoy him as their king forever in perfect joy and peace. Joy and peace walked around our neighborhood last night and little snowmen holding letters joy in my neighbor's yard. I don't know if the snowmen knew or anybody else knew what that joy is all about. Joy and peace are words that we toss around a lot at Christmas. And rightly so, because that's exactly what Christmas means. One named Jesus has come, who according to his special identity, Is actually able to save us, and who, according to his special purpose, in fact, does save us. And not just once, through one battle with one enemy, but forever and from every enemy, because he saves us from our sin. And my question to you this morning is Are you one of those people? He will save his people from their sins. Are you in that group? Are you one of Jesus' people? If you are, praise God. Praise God. May he keep you trusting in and waiting for the return of your King Jesus. And may he deepen and sweeten your faith in him this Christmas season and your comprehension of all that his name means for you. And if you're struggling with any particular sin, Remember that Jesus is still with you. He is still God with us. And he will save you from that sin. He will sanctify you through faith in his name. So Keep trusting in Jesus and keep growing in holiness. He calls you to that. And if you aren't yet one of Jesus' people, hear now through me, by his authority and in his name, to become one today. I invite you to become one of Jesus' people. There's only one prerequisite. You must admit that you have sins that you need saving from. You must admit that you're helpless and in need of a Savior, and you must put all your trust in Jesus to do for you what neither you nor any other Savior could ever do. Peter said it in the book of Acts, and I'll close with this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you sent a Savior. And despite all the repeated failures of your people throughout the ages, Lord, you never let them go. We thank you, Lord, for all of us who are in Jesus, for the confidence we have that you will never let us go. And that Jesus will indeed, he has already, and will finally and forever Save us from our sins. Grant us to come to you now and again, every day, finding refreshment through the knowledge that Jesus forgives us of our sins by, and he saves us from them by being the sacrifice for our sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would feed our faith from this word this morning and for those, Lord, who have not yet believed, that you would give them faith even now that they, too, might worship with us together forever that name that is above all names. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.